Welcome to Affect Autism. This week, we are going to be speaking about speech and language with Melanie Feller. She is a developmentally based pediatric speech pathologist and a clinical speech supervisor and mentor. She is also an expert level DIR floor time uh, practitioner and training leader and the first speech pathologist in the United States licensed to provide the Shanker method, which is a method to, self, to support self-regulation. Um, this is Dr. Stuart Shanker's method. He is the um, philosophy professor at Toronto's York University, although he's now working, I believe, out of Peterborough, but he is the one who did the original study on DIR floor time at York University that showed um, structural changes in the brain to improve social relating and communicating in children who had DIR floor time. So we are pleased to have you with us this week. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to ask you um, to tell our listeners a little bit about what you do because there's everybody, I think, who would be listening knows what speech and language therapy is. We bring our children there, they work on our speech and language, but you are a developmentally based uh, speech pathologist, which is a little bit different. So tell us a little bit about how that's different. And then also, Melanie is the founder of For, Love, For the Love of Speech, which is a unique parent coaching program. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well. I would love to. So um, a developmentally based speech pathologist is a speech pathologist that works from the bottom up, essentially. So I'm working on the foundational capacities, which are is a term used in DIR, essentially the child being able to be regulated, be, being able to engage with the world around them, and being able to engage in some type of back and forth communication um, in order to support higher levels of communication. So a top-down model would be where I'm teaching the child, for example, in a behavioral method to say, I want more, please, or more cookies, please, um, and would be teaching them just kind of words to say without having an underlying structure to support those words. So my goal in being developmentally based is that the children um, I work with will understand that there is a wonderful purpose to communication, and I'm not just teaching talking, but I'm supporting their ability to communicate in the world around them. Right, and I forgot to um, introduce, in case we have some new listeners, that we're talking about the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, or DIR floor time, um, started by Dr. Stanley Greenspan uh, a few decades ago, and um, this is uh, an inside-out model. So like you said, instead of just teaching children how to say words, we want them to understand that there's a purpose for communicating with other human beings. Exactly, yes. I don't, <clears throat> sorry, I'm working on a little bit of a cold here. Um, I don't want children to feel like they just say these words randomly and then they get a reward at the end for saying X amount of words. But I want them to understand that there's this rich, wonderful, amazing reward to communicating and being able to interact with those around you in some sort of dynamic way, be that verbal, nonverbal, through an AAC device, whatever it is. But there is such a joy in communicating. And I don't think that joy is necessarily um, reached if you're, if you're just teaching a child uh, to say words. Right. And um, certainly... It is something that varies very much around where everybody lives in different areas. Certainly, most of the speech pathologists um, are working in a more behavioral model where they're working on specific things like articulation or um, you would know more than I do what speech language pathologists do <laughs> does get speech language therapy. His is more in a DIR way. Um, where we're looking at that that affect, like the, the whole reason my website's called Affect Autism is because it's all about the emotion and the affect um, that you get that allows you to experience joy with other people. And part of that is through communication. So, um, exactly. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and how it's unique and how you um, integrate all of these different 
trainings that you've had, like the Shanker method for self-regulation and, and the DIR model? So uh, my practice is based in New Jersey. I provide services to New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. Um, and I go to um, the home of the client and I will provide developmentally based services there. Um, I do parent coaching consultation, um, direct therapy. I do independent evaluations for children that are um, parents that are having some challenges with their school district. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, I am the only practice in New Jersey that's run, owned and run by um, an expert level DIR floor time provider. Um, I think what makes it so unique is that my focus is really to not only support children, but to empower and advocate for their parents. Um, too often I feel like parents, <clears throat> excuse me, are kind of pushed to the side in therapy and, you know, go wait outside the door and come back in 45 minutes or, um, you know, we just had this 45 minute session, here's a worksheet or the worst, which I've heard is, you know, you're going to distract your child if you're in the room, so please go. And I just find that so many parents feel like they're not having any meaningful interaction with their speech pathologist and they don't know what to do and they just take their kid every week and don't feel like there's any progress. And I find that so frustrating. So my goal with my practice is really to not only support children, but to really empower and educate parents to know that in the end, they really know their child better than any of us. And we can support you and work with you. But in the end, you are the expert of your own child. Right. And um, I, I guess what would be interesting for us to think about is how you would work differently with different profiles of children and you specifically focus on the pediatric level but even within that pediatric level i imagine you see some children who are nonverbal and some who are very verbal so i do where do you start that's a good question. So I think every child is very different. Um, I don't use a cookie cutter approach. I really approach every child um, from the standpoint of kind of a blank slate. What am I looking at? Um, I take an intake form, but I frequently don't read more than the first page of it just to get some basic background. But I like to really meet the child and the family without knowing too much about what's going on. And then kind of get a feel for how they interact with each other. Um, I don't like it to be this, you know, well, tell me about um, this and tell me about that. But I really want to see the family and the child interacting dynamically. And I can learn so much about um, where the child needs supports, where their strengths are, um, you know, where their challenges are. And the same for the family. Like, how can I coach parents to, to better help their child and to help themselves um, as well? So evaluation is very individualized, very strength-based. Um, and I try to address deficits through the child's strengths. So for example, if the child is really amazing at, um, you know, um, pointing, for example, and, and drawing the attention of the adult to something they love, but they can't necessarily communicate that verbally, well, how can I use that amazing pointing and calling attention to support that verbal communication? So I'm always looking at supporting things from a strength-based perspective instead of a deficit-based perspective, if that makes sense. Right. And can you give us examples of how do you support that? So um, for, I'll give you kind of a, a juxtaposition. So a deficit-based example might be um, your child can't put two word phrases together. So I'm just going to focus on that. And I'm going to teach your child um, more please, um, uh, my toy, and whatever, maybe 10 or 20 phrases in a discrete trial format or in a more behavioral, behaviorally-based format um, without necessarily the context of the interaction. Whereas in a strength-based model, I'm looking at, okay, well, you've got single words, that's great. Let's get into this great dynamic play situation, um, hopefully something that the child um, is leading and that I can participate in. Um, and then I'm going to work to draw the child kind of gently, I always say sort of move them gently but firmly up the developmental ladder. So I want to find that just right challenge, meet them where they are, and then move it up a little bit. So maybe they're going to point and say, baby, baby, and I'm going to say, oh, you know, my baby or, or um, little baby, or essentially I'm going to be tacking the word onto what they're saying in the play model so that it's very dynamic, it's very natural, and they're having this auditory input of what they can be saying. Um, I find that to be so much more supportive and so much more effective instead of teaching, okay, say this now, say this now, say that now. Yeah, and I know um, a few years ago when our son was less verbal than he is now, he just loved bouncing those little balls that you get out of the gumball machines. Yes. 
though they would be in the lobby area of the school and there would be, you know, a bench and some big plant and he's bouncing this ball around and they would say, oh, oh, it went so high or it went mm -hmm. behind the plant and where did it go? And then they'd go and look and they'd say, oh, there it is behind the plant and then there it is in front of. And that was a good way to teach, uh, what are those called, prepositions or? Um, yes, yes. Yes. Anything. So, I mean, you can teach anything through that sort of, oh, wow, he loves the ball. What can we do with the ball? So many things to do with the ball. You know, can we, can we eat the ball? Can we, you know, pretend it's symbolic play? Can we connect ideas together about where the ball is, is going, where it's going to go next? There's just, there's so much richness to be had over the simplest of things that don't require a table and chairs or flashcards or, or worksheets. And I really... I stay away from that as much as I can, and I, I wish everyone else did as well. Yeah, because we started out doing the speech therapy that was more behavioral. That was the first type that he did receive, and mm -hmm. it was miserable having to sit in this table, and, you know, they sort of trap you in this U-shaped table mm -hmm. that pushes him right mm -hmm. in. And, and, you know, he needs to move, and he, and he didn't like it. And what is the benefit of forcing him to do something when instead – He's running around, bouncing these little balls, having the time of his life, enjoying that he's sharing joy with the therapist who's mm -hmm. laughing with him and helping him find the ball. So they're getting into capacity four where they're socially problem solving together to find mm -hmm. where did this ball go? And then adding all of these words, he's hearing this. And not only that, but also it's so much more generalizable because now that he had emotion and affect attached to that learning experience, when something else happened and it went behind something, he understands what behind means, as opposed to right. just memorizing behind. <laughs> exactly. It's much, it's much more real when it's three-dimensional. When you're just looking at a flashcard of an apple, it has no, no meaning for you. But when you're looking at this delicious, crunchy, red, juicy apple, it's like, oh, that's an apple. And it's, it's way different and it's so much more effective and respectful, I think, because, I mean, as adults, I don't think we want people to sit with us and show us one flashcard after another when we're trying to learn a new concept. Um, we'd really love to learn it in a dynamic way where we're actually feeling it, sensing it and, you know, getting it through all, all modalities. Absolutely. And I remember hearing a recording where Dr. Greenspan said, um, when you think of an apple, you want to think of the experience of the apple biting into it, what that feels like, the juiciness, the taste of it. And all of that is going to give you a concept of what apple is as opposed to a red circle on a flashcard. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I'm just curious, um, do you work with kids that are nonverbal and maybe won't ever have speech in the way that you and I are speaking, but might use different kinds of devices? And how does that work? I do. Um, I really, it's, it hasn't been as much of a focus in my practice and it's becoming, in the last year or two, it's become an increasing part of my practice. Um, and I'm not sure where the shift began, but I find more clients coming to me saying, um, you know, so-and-so, uh, you know, treated my child for a while and they've given up. They say my child isn't able to communicate and that's the end of it. Um, so we've been introducing the idea of different um, communication apps. I am, I'm not a technology fan for um, the majority of children, but I think technology is amazing for communication purposes. So I've been working with different apps. I'm actually working with a specific AAC specialist now who's mentoring me um, so I can learn more about how I can support the children I work with. But I think there's always, always a way to communicate. If it's pictures, if it's an AAC device, which is a, an augmentative communication device, um, if it's pointing and gesturing, wh whatever it is, I think everyone requires a way to communicate because in the end, everyone wants to communicate. So it's just about finding the right kind of communication method for the particular child. Yeah, uh, and I'm very interested to hear about your love of speech um, model for parents because I imagine that um, that is so huge because most of the children's time is spent with their family. And mm -hmm. how do you work with parents? 
So as I had said earlier, I'm really all about empowering parents um, in my practice. And this, this all came about, for the love of speech came about because I started doing um, independent evaluations um, for litigation purposes. So essentially I have families coming to me with children ranging from just entering preschool at three years old to um, older, you know, mid-teens. Um, and they're receiving really subpar services in their specific district. Um, most of the children are on the spectrum. Um, and they're not receiving the support they require. Many of the many of the families are interested in DIR. Some of them haven't heard of DIR, but they just know that what the child is getting is insufficient, um, and they're not making progress. And it, through these interactions I've had with the families, families have said to me, "Oh, you know, well, someone came in to train me how to do the ABA, and I just don't feel like I know how to do it, and I don't feel like it's realistic." And I, she was just talking to me like I wasn't intelligent. And there was just there's been like this running thread that parents just don't feel supported um, by the professionals through their districts or however they're finding these professionals. But parents don't feel like they're being supported. So I had this idea that all we want, all parents ever tell me is that they want their child to communicate. That is everything. And I, I, I'm actually having a memory now of seeing a video of Dr. Tippy um, talking about what's the number one thing parents want. And it's for their child to say, I love you. Um, and I think that's really, that's very accurate. So I thought about it and created this program called For the Love of Speech, um, because we, we love speech, we love communication. And the idea is that a parent can work with me. Um, it's a program that can vary in the number of weeks or months, or it can be just a one-time consultation. And essentially, I'll meet with the parent um, and the child, discuss their concerns. First, I meet with the parent separately, and then I meet with both. But um, I hear the concerns of the parent, I watch them interact, um, and then we do um, both in-person consulting and a video um, consultation where they're sending me a video um, and I'm looking at it and then sending it back to them. That's, I've only done the video um, portion one time at this point and it was wildly successful. It was just very cool for the family to have that feedback on their video. Um, but the majority of what I do is in-person and it's just a really great program for parents to feel empowered, supported, and educated and to really feel like they have the tools they need to help their child instead of feeling like they need to wait till I come back seven days later to get some sort of, you know, feedback that's like uh, a note on a paper. So it's a little bit of helping them with advocacy for their child as mm -hmm. well as coaching how to interact with their child. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's pretty, that's pretty much correct. Um, I, obviously, not every family needs, um, you know, formal evaluation reports. So the advocacy piece isn't always part of that. Um, it frequently is. But any parent um, can obtain these services from me. You don't need to need a report. You don't need to be in litigation or not like your school district. It's any parent that just really feels like they don't have the support they require. Um, I am really more than happy to work with them to make them really help them understand that, that they know what they're doing and they just maybe need some tips or some support. Um, but it's really a parent education program, yes. And do you ever find that you end up um, being included in school meetings to advocate for their child? Um, I'm laughing. I wish I was. Um, I have parents have frequently wanted me to be a part of it. Um, and. I don't know how it works in other states, but it's um it's quite litigious in New Jersey, and there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of politics here and dynamic um, that's a little bit difficult. So, for example, if I could attend the meeting on Tuesday at one o'clock, the meeting all of a sudden might get changed to Wednesday at three, or um, there's just sort of these little tiny changes and things that make it extremely difficult um, to coordinate me attending meetings with families. I'm more than willing to. I'm happy to but it frequently doesn't work just because of my schedule and the way that it winds up kind of working with the district um, themselves. Yeah, I mean, there certainly can be many nightmarish stories I've heard <laughs> about public <laughs> schools, um, but there's always the great examples as well when there's, um, you know, a caring staff member who really tries to do the best. It, it's, I can't imagine how challenging it is for the school districts when they have a number of different children that all have very unique needs and trying to accommodate all those needs. Um, but um, that being said, <laughs> that's the reality. It is. I mean, they call it, you know, an individualized education plan um, because it is supposed to be individualized. And so I agree with you. I think it's very difficult for a district to have 
I don't know, let's say 20 children on the spectrum that all have different needs and all require different um, levels of support, I can't imagine the difficulty, the logistical nightmare, frankly, for, for, you know, budgeting and for this and that. I get that logistical situation and I get the practical nature of the challenge. But in the end, every child requires an individual um, plan and every child requires um, a least restrictive environment and a free and appropriate education. So it's the district's obligation to provide that. And if they can't, then they need to find a better option, help the family find a better option. And there's so many breakdowns along the way. Um, I just find it very sad. It's like we're just trying to educate and support the child. And in the end, it, everything gets lost in this. Well, you know, he's got to stay in the district. He can't go out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it just gets a little tricky. Here we have Celebrate the Children in Rebecca School. Um, so they're both um, places that a lot of my families really, really like to send their children to. Um, and they're both wonderful schools. I was just going to say the solution is we need more DIR schools. <laughs> we do. Yeah, we you, do. Brought up, you brought up those um, DIR schools, which is great. And, you know, um, but the reality is everybody can't be at a DIR school. And, right. and it can be very frustrating to finally take the huge step of getting help for your child that and support um, from a speech pathologist like yourself. And then having the frustration of the staff at school not cooperating or not being on the same um, plan as you want to be, and um, it, it it is a very it is a big challenge for families. Um, yeah, I, I feel for all the families. It's 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 very tricky, and I think there's a level of emotion, of course, that's involved because it's your child, and you really want the best for them, but you also hear you know, the SLP saying your child isn't going to go much further. Um, and I, I can't imagine all the different emotions that a parent, I'm not a parent yet. And so, you know, I can only look at this from a professional perspective, but I, I can't imagine how devastating it must be to hear that your seven-year-old may never talk. Um, and also to think inside your head, wait, but I think, I really think he has that potential. So I think that's a, that's a tough spot for parents to be in. Yeah, and you know, I would like to explore that a little further because um, it really is one of those things that is a big question mark and an unknown for a lot of parents. Um, you you don't know when your child isn't speaking. You don't know if they if they ever will, and then you may have different input. Um, in in our case, our son suffered severe brain inflammation and then lost all of his speech and language. And it was months before we heard a, a little sound out of him. And the, the assumption is that he's going to recover and his, he responded to the treatment and he's getting better now. But then we're left with all of these deficits and you don't know if it's going to come back. And, um, you know, now he's speaking in full sentences. He's, he's um, doing so well. He has many, many challenges, but he's doing so well seven years later. But I know that feeling of just feeling so helpless, not knowing what the future is going to bring. And it, it's filled with, you know, a spectrum of emotion because on the one hand, you are just so happy to have this beautiful child in your life. So if, if he's not going to speak, well, then we're going to help him in whatever way we can to help him communicate. And that's great. But then if he, then just knowing that it's going to bring so many more challenges and feeling that grief of, I really want him to be able to speak so that he can, you know, participate and communicate in the world in, in a certain way. And just, you know, all these expectations that parents have that, that, um, you know, need to be shifted as you get to learn who your child is. And um, it, it's filled with, it's filled with a lot of politics right now because, you know, there's a lot of self-advocates that are very vocal these days. And, you know, many of the advocates who are vocal maybe weren't treated so well when they were younger because mm -hmm. a lot of the models weren't very respectful. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you are someone who's not able to communicate verbally and now you've found this wonderful way to communicate with the world, um, it, it must be heartbreaking to hear someone being disappointed that you're not going to speak because it, it's really, it's really, um, 
it's such a touchy subject. Let's just say that because it's not necessarily about um, being disappointed in the child. It's about always wanting your child to not have to suffer or go through hardships or extra challenges. But I think a lot of parents, um, you know, certainly it varies from parent to parent, but a lot of parents are very good at, you know, meeting the situation where it's at and just doing the best they can to advocate for their child and provide their child the best opportunities. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess, what is your experience in dealing with this where you have parents come in and their child is not speaking and it's uncertain what the future will be? Because in some cases, it might just be a developmental challenge. In other cases, it might be a genetic condition or some kind of neurological um, issue that prevents them from phys- physically from speaking. And I don't know all of the different names of the different uh, speech disorders that can happen, but how, how do you go about figuring out what the path is? And as a side note, I will say that we were lucky because we had a lot of positive voices around us. Um, mm-hmm. I was lucky to find DIR floor time very early on. And the people I spoke with all said, the sky's the limit for your son. Um, you just have to be patient and just trust in the developmental process. And that was so helpful for me because it, I've seen so much progress in him. But um, I can't imagine what it's like to hear these negative things. Like the one negative thing that we heard was I said, um, so will my son have a full recovery? Because, you know, before mm. he had the brain inflammation, he was quote unquote developing typically, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And and the doctor said, I like to say, he was a neurologist, said, I like to say, um, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and it's somewhere yeah. in between. And, and to me, I said, well, what does that mean? I said, what's the worst? And he said, well, the worst would be that he won't develop any further. He'll just stay where he's at developmentally. But we know that's not true because we've already seen progress in the last four months or whatever it was when he said this. So I just remember that feeling like a huge kick in the gut because you just want to hear that everything's going to be okay. And talking seven years later, I can say to parents that, you know what, you're going to be on a path that's unique to your child and your family. Exactly. the best thing you can do is empower yourself because nobody knows the future. Even people that don't have challenges, (laughs) you can get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? You can find out you have cancer, whatever it is. Um, You just have to try and empower yourself and get through um, how to uh, help your child um, cope with every day and thrive Mm -hmm. really. Um, So how do you handle that when you have, the parents coming in and, and not really knowing if their parents are going to, if their children are going to speak and how, how are you able to assess uh, what they're able to do and, and move them up that developmental ladder? I, I think the first place to start is that I always, always, I never tell parents that everything is going to be okay. It's going to be fine. You know, thank goodness you've come. I'll have your child all better in, you know, 15 sessions or something um, because I, I can't, I can't, as a speech pathologist, fix things. I can't, you know, put a Band-Aid on them or, you know, heal whatever is wrong. But I can provide therapy that is effective and respectful and fun and engaging. And that will pull the child into wanting to communicate more and wanting to be involved in the world around him. Um, You know, a lot of what I do is is really work on the precursors to communication. So those are... um, like intentionality, um, sharing attention around something of interest, um, reciprocity being reciprocal. And I always tell parents, we're going to, if the child is, you know, nonverbal or has very, very limited communication, I always tell them that we're going to start here. We're going to start with those precursors. We're going to start with a very basic level. Let's get him engaging. Let's, let's work on relating. Um, again, we're working on this all through the DIR floor time model. So it's all play-based. It's fun. It's dynamic. It's, it's, it's exciting for the child. Um, and I always tell the parents that child really, I think every child has unlimited potential. We, like you said, we, you know, I, I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know what's going to happen next. 
Um, but I don't see any reason to ever put a limit on a child's development. And that is accurate, I think, for a child who's two or, frankly, a young, a, a young person who's 22. Um, I think the brain is always capable of changing. I think growth is always possible. Really, I would say in 99.9% of the situations um, out there. So I think for a practitioner to say, oh, sorry, you're out of luck, um, is really unfortunate and almost somewhat unethical, actually, because I don't think any of us can know what's going to happen next. Um, so I think it's really critical to not provide false hope and say, oh, it's going to be all better. But to be honest and be realistic and say, look, you know, we're, we're working really hard. We're having so much fun. We're really supporting your child where he or she needs to be supported. And we're giving you the tools you need to help support that continued development at home. So let's, let's see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking right now of a, of a child. I work in a public school um, as well as my practice. And I'm thinking of a child I met who was discharged from speech therapy when he was 10 because he is essentially nonverbal. And at the time, his speech therapist in school said he couldn't make any progress and she let him go. And the speech therapist the following year, which was last year, um, thought that was incorrect, put him back on caseload and proceeded to work on getting him an AAC device, a, a talker. Um, he got that device this year. And this child who had no ability to communicate because he, he's nonverbal and he had no talker or pictures or anything, he's now 12 and he is beginning to put together two word phrases on his talker. And it is the coolest thing I've ever seen. He is so excited and his mom is so excited. And she told me that she was, she was excited, but she was also so incredibly grief stricken to think of all the time that had passed that she thought that he couldn't do anything because of this random speech therapist, um, you know, that finally discharged him. But over the years, she said people had said, oh, he's not going to really do anything. And um, I thought that was so, so unfortunate. It's so exciting to watch this child's progress, but so unfortunate for how, um, how much he and his family have struggled just to get where he is now. And, you know, I have to tell you, Melanie, that's part of why I do these podcasts, because it is so... Um, so many parents might really think, I don't know anything. They're the professional. I guess they know what's going to happen. And, and even if you have an instinct or a hope that things will be different, um, sometimes it's very hard for parents to take initiative because they're just so overwhelmed with getting through and sure. life every day. And to hear that inspiring story, just like really warms my heart because now this child, this mother can see this child can communicate with me and they see that this is a developmental process and it will lead to longer phrases and it will lead to that child being able to have his own blog one day and tell us yeah. all yeah. of the experiences that he went through as a child and, and to be able to help other families in the same situation. And it makes me think of Carly Fleischman in Toronto, who's pretty much a celebrity now. She's been on all the talk mm -hmm. shows and, and, you know, for years and years, like she has a twin sister who's neurotypical and they just noticed that she wasn't developing the same way. And they thought for years that she couldn't understand them and that mm -hmm. she had an intellectual disability. So she wasn't able to comprehend what they were saying. And the father I saw the father speak here in Toronto when the book came out. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what her book is called, Carly's World, or um, uh, I'll put it. In, yeah, I'll, I'll put it in the blog, a link to it. But when he said, you know, when that one day she somehow was able to type "teeth hurt" and then she threw up, and then it took mm -hmm. a number of years for them to work with her to teach her how to use the the typewriter to communicate to realize that all that time she was a very intelligent person trapped in a body that wasn't cooperative with her to know that mm. all the things they said about her and talked about her in front of her, that she understood all of it. The father said he was just horrified and like, you know, just, yeah. um, just blew him away. And like, look at her now, you know, look at all of her mm. physical and, and other, um, disabilities but she's sitting there doing her own talk show on youtube you know it's amazing yeah it's amazing it's so it's so cool to see that and i'm i was so impressed hearing that story um and i have her book and it's just it's really neat and it's sad but for how much you know she struggled along the way but so neat to see how far she's come absolutely and um and 
I do like that you said it doesn't matter if they're two or 22 because, uh, oh, her book is called Carly's Voice. Um, and then her talk show is Speechless with Carly Fleischman. <laughs> fabulous name. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it is um, one thing I wanted to touch. Oh, well, two things. So that's one thing that uh, Gil Tippy has said in, in the podcast that I've done with him or, and or in private conversations I've had with him is, you know what? Um, there's no rush in floor time. There's no timeline on development. If your child may or may not um, pursue academics later in life, do you care if they go at 22 or age 35? If your child is living in the basement because services ended at age 18 and now they don't know what to do, excuse me, so they're just on the computer all day long, and then, you know, we're able to then realize, like, oh, I'm ready to do something else now, and they're developmentally ready. He's worked with um, adults on the spectrum and have, who have other challenges who are then able to move out of their parents' house and be independent and have jobs. And so this is not something that you, can, you need to give up on. There's always um, a path. And that leads me to the second point about what you said, which is um, this whole concept of the brain changing or whatever. I just really want to clarify it because I know that some people take offense to hearing, why do you need to change me? And I just want to stress that DIR floor time and, and the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, which is the home of DIR floor time, ICDL.com, has worked with self-advocates and the um, Autistic Self-Advocate Network. They've worked with um, them to make sure that the curriculum in DIR floor time is in line with um, everything to make sure that the point is we're not changing the child um, in a way that we want to make them be a certain way. It's that just like any parent with any child, challenges their children to grow and develop that's what we're doing with each of our children and um having our children reach i like virginia spielman's term she used reach their authentic self and that will look different for everybody whether you have developmental challenges or not we all want to do what we can to reach our potential in this world and um whatever that looks like is a total individual thing so when you're talking about um, working with the parents to to have the child communicate and push them up the developmental ladder, you can you can let me know what you mean by that. But I, I am pretty sure you mean that you want to see this child uh, blossom. It, that's exactly it, and I'm glad you brought that point up um, because I think I I do want to be cautious in in the way I speak um, that I'm not. I don't think any of us actually. I think I can speak. Um, I think I can speak really for the majority of the DIR community. Um, I, we are not, as DIR practitioners, looking to change anyone in terms of, oh, well, you need to be this way or that way in order to be successful. Um, I would not say, okay, well, now you can communicate so you're successful. If you are unable to communicate effectively, you're still a success of a person because you're a person and you're, you know, alive. And we, you know, we presume competence. We presume you are a competent human being regardless of your, uh, you know, demonstrated abilities. I mean, many children understand everything around them, but they can't express themselves. That doesn't make them any less of a person. Um, and it's, it's important. I, you brought up a great point. It's very important that I think listeners understand that the idea of DIR and the work that I do is meant to really empower and support um, and, and help thrive and grow, but not in any way to change someone um, or make them into something different. You know, if your child's flapping their hands or, um, they are echolalic, meaning, you know, they repeat what, uh, what they hear around them or they perseverate, they stick on something and say it over and over again. If they want to do that, that, that is perfectly fine. That can happen in speech therapy. And I will be happy to hear all about Mickey Mouse for the 500th time. And we will use that in the speech session and how fun that we can talk about Mickey Mouse and, you know, how can I take this child's love of Mickey Mouse and his repeated insistence on talking about Mickey Mouse to another level? Can we talk about Mickey Mouse in a greater way, in a different way? Uh, can we elaborate? 
So really taking, harnessing the child's interests and taking them just a step further is what um, I think we're all looking to do um, and what I strive to do in my practice. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, there, there are parents who come in and they know right off the bat, I want my child to say this and I want my child to do this and I want my child to do this. And they might have very strict or rigid behavioral expectations for their children that maybe aren't realistic. Um, so that's a challenge right off the bat. But my guess is those parents aren't, may not be the ones seeking out more time, but they, yeah. they still might have certain expectations. And how do you work with parents to really bring them around to see the potential in their child and how it might look different than your expectation is? I um, mean, I think that's, the parent, okay. not you, Melanie. <laughs> No, no, of course. Um, I think that has been, in all honesty, one of the trickier parts of my practice. Um, I've been working for, gosh, close to 14 years at this point. Um, and I think that has always been a challenge. I have had parents hang up on me. I've had parents, um, you know, hear about me and then say, oh, can I give you a call? I want to schedule our next session. You know, when can you do this? And, you know, in the context of the, of the session, of the conversation I say oh you know I do DIR or I use developmental methods and they just end the conversation they don't want to speak to me anymore um, so I think it has been a great challenge to help parents understand that there is there are other ways of doing um, of doing things of interacting with children on the spectrum of supporting children on the spectrum um, so as I've grown in my practice and as I've grown as a practitioner I've learned and I've, I think I've, I, I, I should say actually in the interest of full disclosure, I was an ABA practitioner for the first five, six years of my practice, embarrassingly enough, I say. Um, I loved ABA. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I ran the programs. I wrote the programs. I was trained by a, a really wonderful speech pathologist um, who I still think is a great speech pathologist. We're just on two different pages at this point. Um, but around 2009, 2010, I had a shift in my practice for multiple reasons and decided that um, it wasn't all a big mistake, but it was, it was time to see things from a very different perspective. And I, I knew that. Um, and then one day I remember sitting on the floor um, with a child and we were playing and someone said to me, Oh, that looks like floor time. And I said, what is that? And that was actually how it all sort of began. Um, but I, I've gone off on a tangent here. Um, but in terms of supporting parents, um, so I'll have a parent call, let's say, and they say, oh, my child's getting ABA, you know, five times a week after school or something, you know, how can you help me? And I try to explain that what I'm offering is different because um, it's very respectful. I'm going to take the child for who he or she is. I'm not going to try to change them into something else. I'm going to really try to enhance what they have, um, you know, and as I said before, work on their deficits into, and deficits by, I mean, perhaps not speaking um, as much as they could be. Um, through their strengths. So I stress that strength-based model. I stress that it's fun, that there won't be any crying in speech therapy. Um, I stress that it's very parent-friendly and that parents are welcome to join in. Um, and I stress that it's very easy to do this at home. There's no need for a token board. There's no need for, um, you know, the table and chairs or to sit, you know, doing trial after trial or um, really rigid, unfortunate activities. But rather, this can be dynamic. This can be at the playground, uh, in the car. It can just, it can happen anywhere. Um, I stress the research behind the IR floor time. It's evidence-based. And um, I've had parents say to me, well, ABA is the gold standard. That's what my doctor recommended. Um, and I always stress that the research that has been done on ABA is not generally looking at the way a child interacts with the world around them. Um, you know, ABA is great for teaching, you know, maybe, I don't know, if you wanted to teach a child that this was a star, you could certainly train them to understand that this shape on this card is a star. But is that going to do anything to support their real foundational challenges, which are engaging and relating and communicating with the world around them? Um, and a behaviorally based method, in my opinion, simply can't do that. So I try to relate all this in a very respectful, um, you know, gentle, kind manner. And I think for the most part, um, you know, fewer people hang up on me. <laughs> um, and I have a lot of families that I've worked with that really are diehard ABA supporting behavioral approaches. And I am the one um, you know, floor time person that they'll work with. And it's okay. You know, I'm willing to, to, to do that. And I'm, I'm happy that they're willing to consider something different. So it's, it's a process. It's definitely been a process and it continues to be a process. 
Um, I, I, I chuckle when I think of Gil Tippy's um, speech that I think is on one of his YouTube videos where he basically said that any good progress with ABA is really just because of the good relationship that the therapist has, which is really DIR. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And I mean, it's really incredible how many developmentalists are former ABA people. They, they took ABA, they learned it, and they realized the limitations of it uh, as, mm -hmm. as useful as it can be. And then they come to the developmental understandings and, and models. And, and that's true for a lot of different people. And, and I remember my first introduction was, uh, you know, my learning and behavior course in my undergraduate, because I have a master's in psychology. And it was all about behaviorism. And I remember thinking, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, you can make anything happen you want by just doing <laughs> Of course, it wasn't in the context of autism or ABA. It was just in sure. general behavior theory, uh, behaviorism, and all about B.F. Skinner and all, you know, the history and psychology of all of that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, coming more into when I was deciding to become a parent, finding out more about the developmental approach to parenting and discovering Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a developmental psychologist out of Vancouver, mm -hmm. and his mm -hmm. whole approach. And that led so so naturally into the DIR model and, and um, floor time because it, it's just when you're developmental, you're just working with the way things naturally progress and um, it, it's and, and being play based. I mean, this is the way that children have learned for centuries and centuries through play mm -hmm. and through emotional experiences, um, which ABA really uh, doesn't use in in their strictest uh, guidelines. It's it's ignore the emotion. So, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we did get off a, a bit of a tangent, but um, it is something that I imagine is, is something that comes up for a lot of people because they have this funded speech therapy through the public services that is behavioral based. And then they might also like this developmental and they're not sure which way to go. And, um, you know, everybody's going to choose what works best for them might be convenience, but I think what you're bringing us today is that the developmental approach to speech and language pathology and using DIR really harnesses that um, natural, playful, um, effective experience that the child will be inspired to want to communicate and share and you mentioned uh, quickly in passing some of the different concepts, and you said intentionality was one of them. And you can let me know what you mean by that, but my understanding of intentionality is that you want to see the child having an intentional purpose for wanting to communicate with you and, and taking the initiative. Is that correct? Or is it yes, yes. No, you you are you are spot on. It's it's the child wanting to do something, wanting to show you something, having an intention to move forward, to get a toy, to uh, want to act on his environment instead of just sort of being the recipient of everything around him. Um, and I always compare it to like the child who is just a responder instead of an initiator. Um, I really want to see the child demonstrating this intention to to move towards something or to engage with someone, but. They need to be able to demonstrate that. And if they can't, that's perfectly fine. But that's something that needs to be addressed before you can really have effective verbal language. Because if you're not intentional, why would you want to communicate? Like, what would be the purpose of your communication if you have no intentionality? Does that make sense? Right, absolutely. And certainly you would do that by enticing the child through something that they're very interested in and making it really fun and, and using affect. Yeah. Yeah, so it's all affect-based. It's, it's very much driven by what the child is interested in. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to sit there while the child, you know, spins a bottle cap around for 25 minutes. But I'm going to offer things, you know, in the room or if I'm in the child's home, you know, then I'm going to, you know, hopefully have a limited supply of stuff in the room. And if they want to spin that bottle cap, that's fine, but we're going to do it together. And what else can we do with that bottle cap? Can we take turns with it? Can we spin it up in the air? Can we hide it? Um, so really, again, harnessing what the child is interested in and then kind of trying to take that to the next step. Um, but it's really, I, 
I think I really want to stress the importance of that intrinsic motivation. So in other words, I want the child to feel internally motivated to have this interaction. Um, and I can support that and I can play and we can have all this great affect supporting that. But the idea is that there's no like, there's no extrinsic reward at the end of the session. There's no, so I'm, all the kids I work with who are, um, who are verbal and who um, are perhaps a little bit older know that I am the no sticker lady, which sounds so mean, um, but I don't, <laughs> I really mean, um, but I, I don't give out rewards. You don't get a sticker for coming to speech. You don't get a sticker when I come to your home. I won't give you a prize. The prize is engaging. The prize is having so much fun in this 45 minute session with this fun person, um, you know, who came over to play with you and, and have a great time. Um, it, it needs to be for internal. If it's not an internal drive to communicate, it's not going to happen effectively. And I think that is the biggest message I, I hope to spread is that this idea of rewarding a child for using their words, quote unquote, is, I think, wholly ineffective and really disrespectful. And, you know, that's one of the biggest hurdles I find with um, parents that are new to floor time is really stepping back from trying to direct and orchestrate things all the time and letting your child mm -hmm. do the initiating and letting your child um, tell us what their ideas are. And right. when we're directing them all the time, which is so natural because you're a parent and you're helping your child through the day and, you know, do this, do that. Okay, now it's time to do this. No, not that way, this way. But when we do that all of the time, our child doesn't have a chance to think for himself or herself and be able to come up with ideas and develop that imagination and um, relate to us in ways that... Is, is different than just what I think they want me to say. So we don't, exactly. want, we don't want compliance. We want, like you said, intrinsic motivation to actually share their experiences with us. And we don't want to, them to be, quote unquote, punished for sharing what's inside of them because they didn't say it perfectly or they used the wrong grammar or, or whatever it is. Yes. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree with everything you shared. It's it, Yes, there should not be, you know, punishment for not doing something right, quote, unquote. Um, just th this idea that, um, that, you, that you need a reward to do something or that you need to control what the child is doing. Um, I remember one, one parent said to me, he's running around, you need to make him sit down. And I said, why? You know, I, actually, I think this was a quote, too, from somewhere. And now I'm thinking about it. I think I've, I'm sure many JR practitioners have talked about this in many um, different developmentally-based um specialist but um the parents said to me why 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 don't they have to sit and I said because you don't have to sit to learn you can run around to learn we will run around to learn today and that's what we did I mean I chased him he chased me it was fun and the child learned and we use lots of words and you know here I come and all sorts of different terminology within that great dynamic fun session um so I think I think it's really we we need to consider thinking outside the box and I think it's scary and I think it's overwhelming and I think there's not a whole lot of support for it sometimes. Um, but that's what at least I'm striving to do when I practice. And I think a lot of other um, develop, excuse me, developmentally based practitioners are working on the same. And let's wrap up today, Melanie, with a little bit about what you've taken from the Shanker method for self-regulation and how you fit that into your practice. So I, I love the Schenker method. Um, I was lucky enough um, to be part of a um, pilot group with Dr. Schenker um, and his colleague, Susan, um, to kind of pilot and let's, the... And let's also, let's also describe what it is. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So um, his program is out of Canada. And I'm sorry, I think you said he has since moved um, from York University. Um, yeah, I'll have to put that in the blog. If I'm... If I'm not mistaken, he works at a Trent University in Peterborough now, but um, he might just work out of the center that they have as well. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, that's been, fine. I, it's fair to say he's been associated with York University in Toronto and Trent University in Peterborough. Yes, yes. And so he started um, his, his center, his, his, his Schenker Self-Reg method. Um, and it's this really amazing method, um, I, I think especially to support regulation in the classroom, um, but in all other settings as well. Um, the idea is that it's great for any age, um, from the very young to adult. Um, and it's a way of considering that 
Um, we all need to be calm and organized and regulated in order to be successful in our environment. And so when something is off, when we're not able to be regulated um, in one way or another, when we feel agitated, if um, something is wrong in our environment or something is wrong internally with us, not, not in a physical way, but in a kind of an emotional way, um, that can throw us off and we may not be able to learn as efficiently or we may not be able to speak as efficiently or interact as efficiently. And so um, how do you support that? How do you kind of reframe the situation um, and offer strategies where you can help the child or help the adult? Um, so for example, there are, um, I think it's five, it's five, so it's five different um, ways that you can look at a situation Dr. Shanker talks about. And it's essentially that um, you, you read the signs of, of stress and you, you, you kind of look out for those signs if you're, let's say you're working with a child. So you kind of look for the signs of stress and see where they may be coming from um, and what's happening. And you try to reframe what the child is doing. Um, and then you try to reduce the stress and figure out how you can alleviate the problem. So perhaps the classroom is too noisy, for example. Is there a way that um, it can be quieter somehow? Is there a way that the child can be in a smaller classroom? What can be done to alleviate the challenge? Um, then you want to think about um, reflecting on the challenge or helping the child reflect and how you can help them enhance their own awareness. And then finally, how you can respond and develop these different sorts of um, strategies to, to help the child or the adult the next time it happens. Um, so it's essentially a process by which you go through to, to be able to, to help the child or to help yourself even. I mean, this is great for adults. Really find a way to stay regulated in a situation. And if you can't, and how you can return to that place of calm and that place of organization. Um, it's a really great, simple, in a way, it's elegantly simple. Um, and it's a, it's a super model. I, I really like it, obviously. Um, I could talk about it a lot. <laughs> and it's based on the first functional emotional developmental capacity in the DIR model, which is shared attention and self-regulation. Dr. Shanker co-authored the book with Dr. Stanley Greenspan, The First Idea where they talked about affect and emotional learning and development and um, that floor time study that they did together at York University sort of uh, developed into this um, self-reg method um, through the funders of that project and bringing it to the masses, so to speak, because if we can bring to the masses how behavior or quote-unquote bad behavior is really just stress and we can recognize what is stressful and help people and teachers parents anybody is more um, empathetic about that then it can only then help um, children with developmental challenges such as autism because this applies to everybody <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the, the main things which I should have mentioned, but Dr. Shanker talks a lot about the difference between misbehavior and stress behavior. So that essentially the child may misbehave, the child may be naughty or, you know, whatever he is, but being behaving badly doesn't mean that you're just misbehaving. It could be that you're behaving in a challenging way because of all the stress that you're under. And so he really differentiates between that stress behavior and misbehavior. And I, I think that's a great message, especially for the classroom setting where teachers may feel, oh, Jimmy's just being bad. But in fact, Jimmy is just perhaps overwhelmed by the level of noise or the level of light. And so that's not um, misbehaving, but he's rather, you know, behaving in a certain way because of the stress he's under. Yeah. And I mean, it's just been in our culture since behaviorism took over after World War II, it, it's just uh, behaviorism everywhere and Dr. Spock's books on child rearing in the late 60s mm -hmm. and, and parents still very much have that behavioral perspective, like you will behave, you will not mm -hmm. do that. And sometimes overlooking the fact that behavior is communication and our child is communicating to us that they can't handle this in the moment and they may mm -hmm. not be able to express why or how, for instance, uh, my son still doesn't tell us when he he's hungry. So we mm -hmm. start to see crazy wild um, go, I, I shouldn't use the word crazy. Um, that's ableist language. So I want to correct myself there But we start to see him really acting out and right away. We we know okay, let's go through the list Yeah, he's hungry. He's hungry right now. Mm -hmm. so it's um, It's it's a great 
I'm I'm happy that you you are um, using that you've been exposed to self reg and that so many more people are being exposed to self reg because that really helps uh, the cause of people that are promoting developmental approaches. Absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's a great approach. And I know I, a lot of people, um, you know, like I said, I was part of the first um, pilot program that came into the U.S., but I know since then um, a lot of people have enrolled. I know people are enrolling across the world. I think it's just a really great model um, for, for anyone, uh, you know, neurotypical, neurodiverse parents, children, adults, anyone. Um, I think it's a great model to, to help yourself be less stressed, frankly, whoever you are. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Melanie Feller, who is has been with us today, a developmentally-based pediatric speech pathologist. She is based in New Jersey and sees clients in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and uses the DIR model in her practice and the Shanker method. And um, I will include links to everything we discussed in the blog post. And, and um, thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And until next week, here's to affecting autism.